Good morning, friends. You know, the parables of Jesus, which we've been talking about about the last few weeks, are really amazing. I mean, they're so rich, they're multi-layered. They're like one part lesson, uh, one part mystery, one part riddle. I mean, I study them and study them and still not quite sure I understand what they mean. In fact, I'm becoming more convinced that if I read a parable of Jesus and I think, ah, I got that one, I probably don't. It's one of those things where the more confident I am about it, uh, the more pause that gives me about what this might mean. I was thinking about this, and a friend of mine um, who now lives in North Carolina posted something on on Facebook this week, and as it turns out, it was a quote uh, from a memoir from a different friend. Um, And I thought I might share that with you. It talks a little bit about certainty or the lack thereof. It says this, I was once so sure, so sure of myself, so sure of what I wanted, was the same, was one and the same with God and what God wanted. How could it be otherwise? Child of God that I am, I was once so sure I was taught to assert my will in the name of the Lord to be sure for the name of the Lord is a talisman. It's like like a good luck charm. To endorse and to empower my will to be done, for what else could my God have to do but to make all my wishes come true? I was once so sure that I knew what was good for me, and what was good for me was good things for me. Me, 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 me. Oh, I knew better than to say it just like that. I knew how to dress it up in altruistic robes, how to crown it with a chapter and verse, nothing like uh, a plucked verse to make you feel you are so sure. And yet, uh, yet it and I weren't all that bad. Oh no, far from it. But the point of this confession is I was once so sure that I knew good and evil, right and wrong, in me, in thee, in theology, in policy, But there's a snake that lives in that tree. Is original sin of epistemology? To be sure, certitude and doctrine and politics, and just where the dividing line runs, safe and certain knowledge that I'm on the right side of the right and wrong line. I was once sure, and it's fun being so sure. People like it when you're so sure, if they share your certainty. And isn't that what faith is? Being so sure, well, I'm not so sure. Can't miss certainty. Is not the faith that I see when I look at the patriarchs, prophets, and poets, and Jesus? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the cross, faith and hope find their finest hour. But the arrogant certitude is proved to be an imposter. Did I hear that cock crow? Instead of brashness and bravado, the poet of hope said, in quietness and trust. So now when I'm not so sure, I try to be quiet and trust, not myself, my mind, my my kind, but in the mercy of God, in his severe salvation, a salvation that is sweet as honey and severe as the cross, though he slay me, yet will I trust him, surely. 
goodness and mercy. So Brian Zahn, in his book, Water to Wine. You see, uh, Paul Tillich, a famous uh, theologian from the early 20th century or mid-20th century, said, The opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. The opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. Yeah, it's provocative, isn't it? What does he mean by that? I mean, when I come to church, shouldn't the preacher get up and say what's right, what's wrong? We can all be certain that we're right, that they're wrong. Hmm. Kind of like that Pharisee in the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. Jesus says, and this is the kicker, he says, uh, to some who were confident of their own rightness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So Jesus told this parable because some people thought they were always right and they liked to look down on everyone else. So here's the parable he told us. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am, like, I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Interesting, the prayer of the Pharisee. He didn't ask for anything. Wasn't a prayer of petition. Wasn't a prayer of praise. He just said, God, I thank you that I am so good. I fast, I tithe, and I'm not like you jokers. I mean, those jokers. It's funny, isn't it? I was trying to decide how to intro a sermon on the Pharisee and a tax collector. And I wasn't quite sure you knew really what a Pharisee or a tax collector was. I mean, maybe a little bit. So uh, we found some pictures of a Pharisee and a tax collector. We have it here for you. Now, for those of you who are local and know this man on your right, his name is Joe Tedder. He is our county tax collector, which means that the guy, other guy is a Pharisee. Hmm. So, yes, my name is Robbie Waddell, and I'm a Pharisee. Now, you might think, now, why would he introduce himself as a Pharisee? Aren't the Pharisees the bad guys? Well, just so you know, Paul introduces him, Paul the Apostle, you know, wrote, you know, 13 of the 27 New Testament books, that guy. Paul introduces himself and says, I am a Pharisee. 
He doesn't use the past tense. He doesn't say, I was a Pharisee. He says, I am a Pharisee. And at the first general assembly, the first time the, all the leaders of the church got together to kind of decide on their doctrine and the direction of the church, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, was the presiding bishop already. It's, an, it's recorded in Acts 15. And the first group of people to speak at the first group of Christian leaders was a group of Pharisees. They heard from the Pharisees first. So I know in the New Testament, in the Gospels especially, the Pharisees are often set up as the antagonists of the story. And so if that's all we know, we might think that they're just antagonists. They must be the bad guys. But in the first century, amongst the Jews, the Pharisees were just religious leaders, righteous folks, folks who kind of dedicated their life to the study of Scripture and trying to lead by example. They were looked up to. People respected them. They had disciples. Uh, they spoke when, they, when the rest of them got together at their kind of religious services. It was the Pharisee who would speak. So I'm really not joking when I say that I'm a Pharisee. I mean, I'm not officially a Pharisee. I'm not Jewish. I'm not living in the first century. But I'm playing that role. And so... When we hear a parable, and Jesus says there was a Pharisee and the tax collector, everybody who's listening to him goes, yeah, I know how this is going to go, right? Because the Pharisee is the one who would have been respected, and the tax collector is the one who would have been marginalized. I mean, it's not like tax collectors are the most popular people, even in our um, culture. You know, who do you work for? I work for the IRS. Ooh. Sorry, I ask. <laughs> right? Listen, the next time you're out and about, whether you're at Publix or Cracker Barrel or wherever you go, if you happen to see Joe Tedder, you should like, you know, say, hey, Joe, nice to meet you. Or if you already know him, say, hope you're having a nice day. Because you've got to think, how often does the tax collector get greeted with, with some kind of smile or happiness? So in this story, though, as, as Jesus is telling us, it says two men go to the temple to pray. And one is a Pharisee. And he gets up and he says, God, thank you. It's a good way to start a prayer. Thank you that I'm, I'm not an adulterer. That's a good thing. Thank you that I'm not an embezzler. Thank you that I'm not a tax collector. So theologically, the Pharisees not like out of bounds, right? You understand that idolatry is the wrong thing to do. Yeah? Embezzlement is the wrong thing to do. And the Pharisee at this moment just seems to be thankful that he's not participating in those sorts of wrong things to do. Like, who wants to be a tax collector? Who wants to side with the Romans? Who wants to side against the Jews? He says, thank you that I fast twice a week. Now, I don't know how many of you fast. I'm not much of a faster. I probably could reincorporate that back into my spiritual disciplines. For those of you who might know, not know what fasting is, it's when you give up a meal or, or give up food for a day 
uh, in order to kind of say to your body uh, and to food that, that they're not the master of you, right? You're kind of placing your spiritual life um, in a priority. Fasting is a religious practice. It's actually practiced by lots of different religions. Uh, the Jews practice it. The Muslims practice it. The Christians practice it. Fasting is like a good thing. Now, thankfully, uh, fasting is not the end of the story. We also have religious feast. So, yeah. We, we kind of double down on that, right? Hey, let's get together. We'll have breakfast beforehand before we come to worship. Yeah, so fasting and feasting go together, but there's nothing wrong with fasting. In fact, fasting is a good thing, and this Pharisee is like doubling down on fasting. I fast twice a week. Good for me. So here he is. He's praying, he's fasting, and he's tithing. Tithing is also a good thing. Tithing, giving a tenth of what you have uh, to, to the Lord. It's the way the temple was run. It was kind of the economic system of ancient Israel. Um, everyone else had their own land. Uh, the 12 tribes had been split up with kind of 12 regions or districts. And so the families from those tribes had land. And from that land, they could make a living. The tribe of Levi was not given any land. They were the priests. And so they didn't have a way to make a living. And so what happened was everyone else gave 10% of what they had to the Levites so they could run the temple. It's a good thing. Tithing's not a bad thing. Fasting's not a bad thing. Not wanting to be an adulterer or embezzler, also not bad things. It's not as though this Pharisee is either theologically or spiritually or practically out of bounds in what he's saying. And so I have to imagine when Jesus starts this parable, the people that are listening are going, yeah, yeah, I know those Pharisees, good people. Kind of like Robbie Waddell, he's not a bad guy. Yeah. Yeah? <laughs> Gosh, you all seem surprised there for a second. <laughs> yeah, not such a bad guy. But, but here's, here's the kicker, though. In Jesus' parable... The Pharisee is out of bounds. Because when it comes to prayer, prayer is not to be a showcase. We don't pray so that others can hear us. And in another part of Scripture, uh, Jesus says, When you pray, don't use a lot of words like the Pharisees do. It's an interesting passage of Scripture. Because kind of growing up in the church, I always respected those people who could pray long and loud. Because the longer they could pray and the louder they could pray, I guess the better they were. You're right? They were the godly spiritual people. Did you hear how long they prayed? Man, he used a lot of big words in his prayer. Man, she must be great. Half of her prayer was in tongues. But Jesus said... When you pray, don't use a lot of words. What he said that for? So here we come, and we hear this Pharisee. And Jesus says, there was this tax collector. And, and everybody would have gone, ooh. Thanks. 
And the tax collector is not even kind of standing, you know, for everyone to see. The tax, tax collector is kind of over by the side, maybe a little bit in the shadows, and saying, you know, my God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, these two men go home, and the one, the tax collector, is justified not the other. Now, it had been one thing if he said that they were both justified. But he's kind of, he kind of strikes a contrast here. The one is justified and not the other. So what's going on there? What's, what's this tax collector have that the, the Pharisee doesn't? What's well, not just a matter of having right theology. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm all in favor of right theology. I believe there's right ways and wrong ways to explain the faith, to read scripture, to to practice the faith. But more importantly than that, more importantly than that, is understanding and living kind of where we are and realizing it's the humility of this tax collector that is being celebrated in this parable of Jesus. And it's interesting to me that it's not that he's justified where he is, but that as he goes home, that he's justified. One of my... um, favorite uh, writers, uh, not so well-known, is a guy named um, Jean-Pierre de Cassade. Uh, He wrote in like the 1730s. Um, He's considered by many to be kind of a a theological and spiritual genius, although um, he doesn't get kind of quoted a lot. Um, He had this one book, it's very short, uh, very celebrated in some circles, called Abandonment to Divine Providence. At least that's one of the titles it goes by. Uh, It was originally written in French. The other title is The Sacrament of the Present Moment. This is is what um, I want you to hear from this parable today. The most holy part of your life is the moment that you're in. God is with you at all times and in all places. And as that tax collector goes home, and as that tax collector kind of does his job, God is there. And it's not in um, sermon preparation and scriptural interpretation and in sermon delivery that we find the most powerful kind of presence of God or a presence of God that is in any way more powerful than what's there at every moment of every day. God is always with you. And if you cry out to God, have mercy on me, then God has who has already forgiven you, 
is waiting to embrace you. This is the sacrament of the present moment. This is the abandonment to divine providence. Look, there's, there's lots that can be said about parables. Uh, any given parable, we could say, is a double, has a double entendre, has multiple meanings. But the meaning here that, that I want you to get is not just laying on the surface. I think on the surface we see that humility is better than arrogance. But, I mean, how many of you kind of already knew that? I mean, humility is better than arrogance. If, if, that was, if that was the deepest part of this parable, I don't know that we would necessarily say, wow, that Jesus, man, he knows stuff the rest of us doesn't know. Right? Now, what's on the surface I think is true. Humility is better than arrogance. But what's lying deeper than the surface, I think, is this. That with humility, we have this opportunity not just to come to church and pray and sing or hear a sermon or to receive a sacrament. But we have this possibility that we might actually live a life full of grace. So I don't know what all of you do kind of for a living or what all of you do kind of during the week. But whatever you do, and I mean whatever you do, whether you're eating or sleeping, whether you're watching television or you're just surfing the internet, whether you're mowing your lawn or you're, you're at your job or you're on your way to your job or on your way home from your job, whether you're with your kids or whether you're by yourself. God is with you. And if you're attentive, there is a divine impulse that will guide you to be the person that you should be, to do the thing that you should do in that moment. One thing that I liked about... um, De Kassad, as he said, people read too many books. Once again, not something you thought you'd hear me say today. But, but, but De Kassad said this. He said, look, we, we're all the time trying to talk to a spiritual director. We're all the time trying to, to read another book. You know, we're all the time trying to find out what the will of God is. Just everybody take a deep breath. There's the will of God. For you to live, for you to be full of grace and mercy and forgiveness, for you to care about the other, for you not to take advantage of the everyday and realize that God is is present, that every moment has the potential of being a sacrament, that every moment can be that time where You are responding faithfully to God. Now that's a life. And that's the life I think that the tax collector receives because he goes home justified. That the kingdom that we were preaching about, that we're focusing this kind of series on, thy kingdom come, 
that kingdom is not here. The kingdom is not the church. The church is the heralder of the kingdom. Right? The, the church is the one who, who, who exists in the world to announce the coming of the kingdom. But the kingdom is far, far larger than the church. The kingdom of God is where God rules. And God rules not just in our hearts or in these four walls, but God rules in the universe. And it's the coming of thy kingdom that we pray for. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so how does that get played out in my life? Or how does that get played out in your life? It gets played out when, when you practice the sacrament of the present moment. This is a little harder to do though. Because you see, in between um, the, the spiritual or theological options that we're often given, lay this third way of, of the practice of the um, um, present moment or the sacrament of the present moment. Because on the one hand, we get kind of this quietism. It's like, well, God does these things, and so, you know, God's done it all. Praise the Lord. That's good. It's all done. It's all over. And on the other hand, <laughs> there's this idea that, that we have to do all this work. We've got to kind of get it done, right? We're activists. If we don't do it, it won't happen. Uh, injustice is not just going to go away on its own. We've got to stand up against injustice. We have to stand up for justice. We have to make a difference in the world. Now, I'm being honest with you, I often find myself on that side of this divide between the quietism and this go get them activism. But frankly, neither side is healthy. Neither side is what I think God is kind of calling us, calling us to be. This Pharisee, like the Pharisees were, kind of knew what was right and would often practice what is right. So as an example, we'll take that tithing thing. It's an interesting thing to talk about. I'm sure you've never heard a minister mention it before in church. But let's, let's see if I can't bring this issue into this discussion of uh, the practice of the, the sacred moment or the sacrament of the sacred moment or present moment. Um, I've off, I grew up in church, and so I'd often hear things about giving. And they would often kind of pluck scriptures out to say, well, here's a scripture, so why don't you give? Except the scriptures that they quoted, I felt like, had little to do with whether or not somebody should give. So, for example, it's my own story, right? So I'm not trying to impose this on you. I'm just telling you my story. So I would hear these uh, offertories given, and the passage of scripture that would be quoted was, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. If you give in such a way, you, it will be returned to you in such a way. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. So that if you gave a lot, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, then you would get a lot. It was like a return on your investment. It was like, you know, the best, it's like your an initial public offering. 
right? IPO, did I get that right? I'm not a financial advisor, so forgive me if I got, yeah. Those of you who know me well laugh the hardest there. Here's the problem with that, of course, is that the context of that discussion has to do with forgiveness. Jesus is saying, this is how forgiveness works. If you are a forgiving person, if you forgive, forgiveness comes back at you. And if you forgive a lot, then other people will forgive you even more. And you know what? That's true. It's not just true because Jesus said it, but it is true. That, that is how forgiveness works. You should try it sometime, right? You, you be a forgiving person and see, see if you don't get forgiveness back in return. Here's the problem. That passage of Scripture is not talking about finances. And when we change the subject, you know, we've kind of plucked something out that doesn't really apply. Sometimes good people give, and you know what at the end? They're poor. <laughs> yes, it's true. It happens. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily return, return back. In fact, most of the people on the planet today are quite poor. Like, I don't have the stats for you, but, but the amount of money that most people have access to are small enough that 10% is basically nothing. I mean, 10% of nothing is nothing. Again, not a mathematician, but I know a little bit. <laughs> Another passage of Scripture, speaking about 10% of nothing. Um, a widow says Jesus is sitting by the treasury of the temple. And a lot of people come and give money, and some give a lot of money. And a widow comes and gives two pennies. That's all she had. So that's not 10%. I mean, I know that. She gave two pennies. That's all she had. And Jesus watched her. And then he called his disciples. He said, hey, fellas, over here. Look at this. Here's a widow. She gave her two pennies. And that's the end of the chapter. It's Mark chapter 12. The next verse, is chapter 13, says... Um, one of the disciples said, Master, look at these stones. Man, it's a temple. It's the most impressive building I've ever seen in my life. A temple that was built from the temple treasury. A temple treasury that in the previous verse, this poor widow had given the last two pennies she had. Once again, I had heard that that meant that this woman had done the best because she gave everything. Now, if that's true, how many of you have given everything, every financial thing you have to the church? Okay, so we're not doing too good, right? <laughs> At least we're not living up to that standard. Are you with me? Like, I don't know anybody who's living to that standard. Like, they've given up every single thing. They've made an ultimate vow of poverty. I mean, a few nuns and priests perhaps out there, but nobody who's coming here... And nobody else that you know. Nor do you feel guilty that you're not. Like no one feels like they're supposed to be giving up everything. So what's this woman about? She didn't give 10% either. I'm not sure what 10% of two pennies is. Because um, you can't really break that down. She's like too poor to actually calculate 10%. That's like poor. You got to have at least 10 pennies in order to give up one. But if you only had two, you can't even do 10%. I know, it's, it's tough math, but stay with me. <laughs> so she's given up everything. 
Jesus said, hey, fellas, come look at this. He didn't say, hey, look, this is good. He didn't say, I'm impressed with her. He just said, hey, look at this. Pay attention. The next verse is, man, this is one impressive building. A building built by the temple treasury. A temple treasury that includes the widow's two pennies. And what does Jesus say about the two pennies? About the, te- about the temple? He says, I'm tearing this place down. Does that sound like Jesus is happy about this or not happy about this? Thank you. Not happy about this. Look, if, if religious organizations take money from poor widows to build their facilities, that is not in keeping with God. We're supposed to take care of the widows, not extort them. In Matthew 23... Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees. This is, like when this is like his harshest take on the Pharisees. Like if you ever wanted to be kind of anti-Pharisee, go to Matthew 23. I mean, it's so bad. It's so bad that you really start to feel for the Pharisees. It's like Jesus, like, cool your jets, man. The Pharisees, nobody's that bad. So he's going after the Pharisees in Matthew 23. And he's like, look, you tithe on everything. You tithe on mint. You tithe on cumin. You're like tithing on your spices that you use in your recipes. But you don't have justice, mercy, and faith. At the end of the day, it can't simply be about have I jumped through all the hoops? Because the hoops that you're trying to jump through are already hoops that you've drawn for yourselves, that we've drawn for ourselves. But on the other hand, it's not as though we can live a life just presuming that God has it all taken care of. And we're just here to either enjoy or to suffer. And this is where I think Jesus and those who are reading Jesus well, and I would put Jean-Pierre de Cassade on the list there, get it that somewhere in between those two extremes, we find ourselves. We find ourselves not just following the example of the publican, of the tax collector who says, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But we find ourselves living a life where every single moment we can be faithful. Where we can do, we can act, we can respond to the grace of God. There is, there is something to do. The Pharisee was not wrong about that. But in doing it, we can't Adopt the Pharisee's arrogance or the Pharisee's exclusion. This is the hardest part. We, we laugh and joke about it and it's fun, 
Those thank you notes I thought were hilarious. But we all have the potential, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all are sometimes this Pharisee. We look at the other, and we're convinced that they don't know what they're talking about, that they're not living the life that they should live, that they're not like us. And we do it in religion, we do it in politics, we do it in economics. We do it playfully sometimes with, with sporting teams. But, but at some point, we need to be serious people who realize this is the one life that we have to live and we should live it faithfully. That God loves us. That God has called us. The Eastern Orthodox Church uses this parable um, three weeks coming up to Lent. They have this kind of longer pre-Lent celebration. Like we're going we're gonna to celebrate before we fast. I don't know if they're celebrating the fact that they're going to fast or they're just trying to celebrate before they have to fast. You know that, how that works sometimes? Like I'm going to start my diet on Monday after Thanksgiving. <laughs> So I don't know their tradition well enough, but about three weeks before Lent starts, there's a Sunday, and it's the Sunday of the publican and the Pharisee. And it kind of commemorates this particular parable. And it calls them to a practice, to uh, an abandonment to divine providence that I believe in God, and I believe God is present, and I believe that I can be attentive to that. And so we do that. So we do these things. We baptize you when you make your profession of faith. We dedicate your children. We marry you to someone when you fall in love. We bury you when you die. We come and we worship and we pray and we give and we sing and we come to the table. These are all those things that we do together. We do them to sustain us, but we don't do that to sustain us for us. We do that to sustain us so we can be the light of the world, so that we can be salt, so that we can go home justified, so that we can be the eyes and ears and hands and feet of Christ in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, when we're standing in line at the grocery store. And so today, again, we're coming to the table. We're coming to the table, and I pray that all of us, myself included, might have the humility of the tax collector to say, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. A sinner. But in realizing that as we take those elements of communion, and I'd ask if our servers would come now to distribute those elements. And if you would, hold on to them and we'll all partake together. But as we, as we partake of those elements of communion today, not only will we have the humility of the tax collector that says, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, but that we would not forsake the theology of the Pharisee. (laughs) 
of, of knowing that there is right and wrong and I'm responsible. I'm responsible to respond to the divine impulse in every present moment, according to De Kassad. Every breath I take, every step I make, every day, every moment is full of life. In fact, it is the only part of life that is full of life. Because we are people of the present. We cannot inhabit our past. Even the best parts of our past we cannot inhabit. That time when you experience God more real than in any other time in your life in your past is still yet in your past. The future is always just out of reach. But we are always in the present. And God is here with us. And I do believe as much as baptism, as as much as prayer, as much as taking communion, that every moment of life is a sacrament. No matter where you are, no matter who you're with, pray that you'll be attentive to God. That that impulse, that kind of evolutionary spirituality, that, that moment where you can say yes to the leading of the Spirit, that that's where we live. That is our faith. We love coming together. We love eating together. We love singing and hearing the music and playing the games and telling the jokes. But again, we do this in order to be the church in the world in hopes that the lives that we live will be used by the God that we serve to establish his kingdom on earth.